Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, today is a special day. It's the 75th anniversary of D-Day. D-Day, of course, to many, is known as the uh, invasion at Normandy. Normandy, France. Now, I'll give you a little bit of background here. The concept of D-Day, or D meaning an operation, uh, was a remarkable achievement. A hundred thousand of our GIs go marching up on beaches, um, some more murderous than others. Omaha Beach is where we went up, uh, and we suffered at least 2,000 casualties, and uh, many uh, were left uh, dead in France at a very special uh, Cemetery and a war memorial is there. This this day is important to me because my father was a World War II vet and he passed recently. And I'm with my mother in Denver, Colorado. So let's set the stage. I'm talking to my mother, who I might add is incredible. She just had surgery, and I'm sitting with her, and she's in a really nice place that has you know kind of assisted living and and independent living um, residences and there's a lot of folks there and Denver's a nice place to live and it attracts a lot of um, special people and so I'm talking to her watching uh, the D-Day events on TV and I have my podcasting equipment with me as usual whenever I travel it's incredible (laughs) hauling all this around but she said you need to talk to Brigadier General Paul David Phillips and I had heard of him Uh, yeah I would love to talk to him I'd love to interview him I have a special interest in interviewing those vets we're sadly losing them uh, every day, and I was real pleased to hear that he wanted to talk. He's been interviewed a few times. He's uh, been interviewed for uh, Veterans History Project and others. Because here's a Brigadier General, um, United States Army, who at age 24, uh, when he was a major at age 24, was captured by the Japanese, and he was captured captured in the Philippines. So let's do the story there. First of all, uh, I think a little bit of history is reasonable. Um, As the prelude to war, Nazi Germany started rattling the saber Uh, shortly after Hitler became chancellor in 1933. Hitler uh, uh, annexed uh, Austria in 1938, and uh, eventually British and French leaders yielded to him in Munich in 1938 as well. But that didn't stop the aggression machine from continuing. The lead-up to the invasion of the Philippines is basically that in 39 Germany um, 
invaded Poland, the Blitzkrieg, and followed by that, uh, Germany then started uh, moving through most of Europe, um, Belgium, Netherlands, and eventually France. The German machine by 1940 was in full swing, and the uh, battle over the British skies uh, was some of Britain's finest hours. Winston Churchill became a big figure, and uh, I don't I don't mean that figuratively. He was he was bigger than life. He was um, a man that kept that country together. He was the man that needed to be there at that time. Other com- countries came in when there was a pilot shortage and helped Britain and the air of the skies eventually vanquished Goering's Luftwaffe, which thought they could just go in and obliterate London, demoralize the city, and that would be that. Not so. All right, fast forward to the war in the Pacific. Japanese and Chinese were not getting along. There was a number of clashes and eventually a full-scale invasion of China by Japan. Um, Japan in 1940 joined Hitler, the Axis, uh, Italy would eventually, and they um, started attacking territories in the Pacific. 1942, uh, it's an eventful year, after Pearl Harbor, the Japanese were on a roll. Uh, They um, won the Battle of Java Sea. In the next month, uh, General Douglas MacArthur was told to evacuate the Philippines and go to Australia. He'd take command of the Allied forces in the Pacific. About 200,000 Japanese invaded the Philippines, and they advanced to Luzon and made a move to not only Manila, but the Bataan Peninsula. It was a peninsula across from Manila, and this is where the uh, Bataan death, Death March started. And... You know, this isn't necessarily a uh, history lesson, but I think it's an important background because you're going to hear from uh, General Phillips that uh, he didn't even know D-Day existed because he was a prisoner of war. The Japanese had historically treated prisoners poorly, and the Bataan Death March underlines that. So... MacArthur asked the Americans and Filipino troops to abandon Manila, that was the capital of the Philippines, and to withdraw to Bataan Peninsula, and they put up a heck of a fight. Uh, 22,000 soldiers took on 200,000 Japanese troops, 60,000 Filipino recruits at uh, Bataan, and uh, uh, eventually they broke through. The Japanese now had the U.S. Uh, soldiers, and they began the march. Um, President Roosevelt at the time wanted to protect uh, the general, uh, MacArthur, and he had him withdraw. And I asked General Phillips about that, 
And you'll hear in the interview his response, which I thought was kind of unique because some were bitter, some were not, about him leaving his troops. But he said, uh, I, I, I will... I shall return, and, and that's a famous line, but Roosevelt wanted to, him to say, we shall return. This, however, was felt by the Philippines, we, meaning the American government, which let him down, um, was not as good as MacArthur, who stood by them, fought with them as I. So MacArthur, uh, being the general he was, said, I shall return, and he did. So I am going to go ahead and hold uh, any further discussions about the historical elements because I think General Phillips does such a great job on helping us understand what it's like to be a young man and a young charge. He was in charge of a lot of men in an age when most kids are just getting out of college nowadays. And he'll... He'll give us a perspective that um, I just don't think many can give, and we're losing these folks rapidly. I was stunned at General Phillips. He's uh, engaging. He is, his head is as uh, clear now as it probably was at age 24, and he's 101. So I'm going to go ahead and let the interview start here, and... I uh, would love to pass on a, your comments if you would uh, include those. I I think that uh, this man is a true American and a true American hero. I do this in honor of my father, my mother, and those that came between us and those that protected our land. So I will go ahead and let's get started. I have the pleasure of interviewing Brigadier General <laughs> Paul Phillips on the 75th anniversary of D-Day. This is beyond um, kind of the average interview. This gentleman has accomplished a great deal. You just showed me a medal. What was that medal, sir? That was the uh, Congressional Gold Medal. The first recipient was Charles Lindbergh. And a lot of people have received it many times for a lot of things, including famous athletes, famous golfers, for example, people who have done amazing things in the aviation world or anywhere else. And it came about as a result of a retired Filipino major general who had been in the U.S. Army getting Congress in 2015 to pass a law that anyone who served in the Philippines during the war through 1941 and even through 1946 after the war was long over or their surviving relatives was qualified to receive the medal. 
it, it's a congressional medal is what it is, isn't it? Well, it, it's a congressional gold medal. It doesn't compare to the Medal of Honor in any manner or shape. Yeah, but it's it's one of those things that is priceless, ageless, and reflects the fact that uh, you have a story. So tell me your story. Well, where do you want me to start? All right, you're in the Philippines. Um, uh, good times, bad times. Uh, I know a little bit about the Philippines and at the beginning of World War II. Um, tell me from your perspective, where did it all start? Well, I went there and I was assigned to the uh, 27th Field Artillery Philippine Scouts. These were American soldiers in the U.S. Army. They were Filipinos who were paid half the salary of the regular American soldier. And they were the best soldiers I ever served with. Yeah, yeah. In... Uh, Late 1941, I was ordered to go to Mindanao to serve on a newly created command called the Visayan Mindanao Force under then Colonel Sharp, later Brigadier, and then General Sharp. And we didn't really get in the war until after the fall of Corregidor and Batan. You know, uh, for those that don't understand how important that was, that fall um, led to many, um, many a story, many of the most important stories of World War II. Um, can you just kind of open that up a little for us? Well, that fall, of course, we had not only threatened the Japanese but had actually taken economic steps against them, denying them any of the oil that we'd formerly given them. And so they went to war, basically, to get to the Dutch East Indies where the oil was. And the point of it is that the Philippines were exactly on their line of communications there was nothing really in the Philippines they wanted, but they couldn't afford to have a strong force in the Philippines. Yes, and uh, how close were you to the march? Well, I was probably 800 miles from where it occurred, and yeah. it occurred before we surrendered on right. Mindanao. Right, and I guess MacArthur kind of bugged out, huh? Well, he didn't bug out. He resisted very much the president's order for him to go to Australia, but the president thought he was a great commander and that he would be much more useful as a commander than as a prisoner of war. I agree. I so agree. he ordered him out, and none of us resented that at all. Well, that's good to hear. You know... I don't think historians have, have jumped on that as they should, that, you know, he was a resource, and you were a resource, of course, but um, I guess he was protected. Now, General Phillips, if you could explain your experience in the Philippines, what would you say 
after that moment, um, you would want the world to know about? Well, I'd want them to know how what the price of being unprepared is. We were terribly unprepared, and most people don't understand the attack on Pearl Harbor, which destroyed essentially our Navy, was simply because of the Philippines. It was from there that we were to be reinforced. And so they had to take that as a first step before they could capture the Philippines and move as they wanted down to the Dutch East Indies. Yeah, and okay, that perspective is important. Now, you have to look at me two generations down, um, and you look at me. I'm, my dad was a World War II vet, but if you could say two or three generations down, we have to remember something. What would that be? Always be prepared. Okay. You were a prisoner of war, weren't you? I was a prisoner of war for 39 months in six different prison camps. Do you feel like talking about that? I don't mind. <laughs> okay. You open up. I'm not sending you questions. You just open up. First camp I was in was in a town in the middle of Mindanao called Malaybalay. And that was the site of the mobilization for one of the ten reserve divisions that MacArthur had created when he was the field marshal for the Filipinos. He was retired from the U.S. Army and had been given a commission by the Philippine Army to protect them. So we lived in thatched huts. We had plenty to eat because the Japanese allowed us to go to a nearby uh, ranch that raised cattle. Hmm. And they benefited, of course, as did we, and we didn't have to work. That did, if that had lasted, we would have had very few American losses from being a prisoner of war. It did not last, and I was next shipped to the Davao Penal Colony, which had been a civilian prison for Filipinos. This was a self uh, self supporting self supporting. Yeah, it had rice paddies. It had fish pods where fish were raised for uh-huh. food. It had uh, hardwood. It had a sawmill raised fruit, even raised coffee. Our job was to raise rice. And we were we did the plowing of the fields, the planting, the weeding, the harvesting, and eating rice three times a day. Oh. <laughs> Almost always with a vegetable soup on top. And very rarely with a little bit of meat when one of the carabao that they used for plowing got too old and the Japanese killed him and we got the leftovers. I was there for about uh, 
26 of the 39 months I was a prisoner in mud up to my knees day after day, six days a week. General, um, everybody has a question mark about how you're taken. Were you taken humanely? Were you treated correctly? I have no complaints about that. I was never uh, beaten during this capture. I was beaten later for things that they thought I did wrong. But uh, I have no complaints. My only complaints are when they tried to move us in what turned out to be very ill-planned trips. And I was on three different ships that were bombed and sunk. And uh, on one of my trips, the survival rate was 17%. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Um, I guess after a while, you... Um, you just turn it down, don't you? You turn it down where you don't think about it much. and um, You never give up hope. You know that you're going to be rescued if you live long enough. Okay. We and did, that's how you survive, by having hope. Yeah, resilience. You know, and you're a, you're a focus of resilience. So we take it to World War Two, and you get out of prison, what's the next steps? Well, I should tell you a little bit about the rescue. I was by then in Mukden, Manchuria, and I was uh, rescued in the first instance by six Americans after the bombs had been dropped. Oh, wow. And two days later, the Russians came in in force, but my general, who had already been rescued, asked that I be on the next plane out. So I was rehabilitated from Mukden through Hawaii and finally home for what I call a well-deserved leave. And then I stayed in the Army the rest of my career. Quite a career. What did you do in the Army? Well, I was in the artillery, and I did things that artillery officers do. I commanded artillery troops. I taught at the, uh, I went to both and taught, uh, taught at the, uh, the academies? I, no, at the, uh, War College? Uh, I did teach at the Army War College, but before that, at the advanced course of the artillery mm-hmm, officers, mm-hmm. and at the War College as well. And I had wow. spent most of my time, however, in the Pentagon. I retired from the Army as an active duty officer in 1966, after being a general only two years. I then went to the uh, Army's Federal Contract Research Center. All the services had one. Their budget was in the R&D budget, and they did things the Army staff either didn't want to do or couldn't do. Mm-hmm. Basically, they were basically they were systems analysis outfits, and very important during especially the McNamara years. 
And after doing that for a couple of years, I became the Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Army. Oh, my gosh. For manpower. And I spent uh, almost 10 years doing that. My wife, uh, her father was a P-38 pilot in World War II. My dad, as I explained to you, he was um, an individual who came up through the ranks. And my wife had a couple questions, if you don't mind me asking. Sure. You know, uh, we are very close um, uh, to the World War II experience, whereas it's kind of fading for others. Of course. Um, And my wife asked this. What What did you say to your men? You know you were a leader, um, and especially when you were imprisoned, you knew you were a leader. What did you say to your men? What did uh, what, what what I'm sorry, I didn't get the question. What what did you say to your men when you were in prison? You obviously knew you were a leader, um, and you have to stand up, and you did. There's not much leading to be done when you're in the rice paddies. Uh-huh. All you can do is try to make the best of it and be an example of how to get by without causing too much attention to yourself. And did the war have an impact on you? Did you feel it? Of course I put, you did. Pretty, Pretty much put it behind me. When people ask me, do I have any resentment against the Japanese, I tell them I'm driving a Japanese car. (laughs) Well, my office wanted me to ask you a couple questions. Sure. General, I I just, I I threw out uh, the hopes that we could come up with some is that door open? General questions. Um, so, yeah, I, I, off the microphone a minute ago, we were talking about longevity because my family has centurions. Um, the general here is 101 years old, and um, we all got to stand up for that. All right, so here's some questions that uh, some folks asked me to ask you. What what was it like when the war is over? What were your emotions like? I know you had Korea coming at you, but, I mean, World War II was huge. I mean, what did you feel like? Well, we felt the exultation that we had saved the world from Hitler on the one hand and yep. Hirohito yep. on the other. And we felt pretty, probably pretty smug about what we'd accomplished. Mm-hmm. And we were probably pretty surprised when the North Koreans decided to attack us. And yeah. Again, it was because they didn't see us as strong enough to stop them. Do you ever see anybody in your unit or any members? I haven't. Uh, my units, remember, were Filipino soldiers. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it was very unlikely I would uh, see many of them. 
This is the best one of all. What did you do when you came home, the first thing you did? First thing I did when I came home? Yeah. Well, my stepmother <clears throat> called me from Denver, which was my home, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in San Francisco, where I was required to stay in the mm-hmm. best hotel while they looked over me physically at Letterman General Hospital. And she asked, what would you like for the very first meal? And I said, ham. <laughs> and she said, that costs a lot of points. Oh, <laughs> gosh. But we had it anyway. Oh, my what God. I did was was eat too much, and I got up to weigh 175 pounds, all out of shape. So my first job was to get back in shape so I could be a proper Army officer. When you got out of the Army in the uh, uh, war, what what rank were you? I was was a major when I was captured. Okay. And at that time, I was... uh, So you were a leader. I at that time I was 24 years old. A major at 24. Yeah. Oh my gosh! Good for you. All right. I can't take all of your afternoon, but I will ask you this. Um. So I'm going to ask you if you could take all your experience, uh, incredible experience that we salute and thank you for. And convey any of it, any age group, uh, you know, up-and-comers and those that have been around. Tell us some wisdom about just leading a better life. Well, I think the point of leading a better life is to accept sacrifice as it comes to support those that have less than you do in your country. Exactly. Exactly. And basically to live for others because that's the greatest reward you can have by the feeling that you get from helping others. General, it's been nothing but a pleasure to talk to you today. And I look out uh, your beautiful home here. I look out the window and see the Colorado Mountains. I don't know. Makes my heart just sad I'm not here, but thank you so much, and um, I know the world does. You're very welcome. May I tell you another experience? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Pick a story. Here, tell me a story. This is a story of what happened when General King, who had been my commander at Fort Stotzenberg on Luzon tried to surrender Corregidor. Oh, yeah. Those are some good stories. And it took a month to accomplish that because he wanted to offer the last vestiges of the fighters on Luzon. And so he only surrendered and one is a surrender, Corregidor. The Japanese general would not accept this. And in the negotiations, 
king had re- released all of his, his subordinate commanders to their own devices. Oh, my. And we were attacked meanwhile and overrun on Mindanao. And General Sharp had then done the same thing to each of the Visayan Islands that he had commanders on. And, of course, they wouldn't surrender. They said, you're in the hands of the Japanese. This could be treason. Meanwhile, Wainwright wrote a letter to Sharp saying, you must do this because there are 10,000 Americans and Filipinos in the tunnels of Corregidor. They are not prisoners of war. The Japanese have said they are hostages. Oh, my gosh. As am I. And they will be treated as hostages until all of the Philippines surrender. So call your commanders back. And I was chosen to do one of those tasks, and it involves Sabar and Leyte. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So I was put on a Japanese airplane, flown by Japanese, flown to Cebu City, which the Japanese had captured. I was then put on an outrigger boat for an overnight trip through the inland sea with Filipinos, no Japanese, taken to Leyte. And then I had to commandeer a car to get across Leyte to get to the commander who was an army colonel by father's age, and I'm a 24-year-old major. And my job is to convince him to surrender without fighting and to provide me a liaison officer to go back to Cebu with the guarantee that they would surrender without fighting. And he did not want to do that. He said these people were the last to surrender during our fight with them shortly after in the early 1900s. And they'll fight. I said, you have no artillery, no way to support uh, yourself, no way to resupply yourself. He finally agreed. So he surrendered. To surrender. Oh, my gosh. I had a piece of paper with me that he was to sign, and I had to take back to General Sharp, saying (coughs) that he would carry out General Sharp's orders. While I was on Leyte, I was contacted by a group of seven Americans who had a Filipino ship in our island steamer, with plenty of fuel to get to Australia, they invited me to join them. But I had this piece of paper I had to take back to General Sharp. Oh. So I had to refuse. Oh, my God. That was your ticket out. And one of the... They made it safely. The first group I met at the top of the market oh. at a party in San Francisco was the whole group... That's a great story. You had a ticket out. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm telling you, that's a great story. 
Yeah. Well, if you have any other stories, well, uh, General, we, uh, we, you know, we're all ears. <laughs> so. uh, you'll probably find him in that tape, I, that DVD I gave you. Okay, yeah, I'll look through that. Thank you so much. Oh, my gosh. What what you do when you sit in front of somebody like this is you just say, thank you, but it's never enough. Oh, yeah, it's plenty. (laughs) (laughs) That was a fantastic interview, and thank you so much, General Phillips. Uh, to your honor. I just would like to take a moment and remember our soldiers who so bravely attacked those beaches on D-Day 75 years ago. And when I think back about D-Day, I I was in elementary school. I remember it really wasn't that far behind me. Um, This is an interesting couple of months because we have the 50th anniversary of the moonwalk in July, and I remember that like yesterday, too. And if you put it in perspective, when I was watching the moonwalk, 1969, it was only 25 years after D-Day. So we went from D-Day, and that entire day of hell, it was actually weeks, to... Walking on the moon in 25 years. Uh, To all uh, that made this possible, thank you. And I hope you enjoyed the podcast. More to come.